You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 27th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. I am ashamed because I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist. He is a con man and he is a cheat. Yes, we'd noticed. Donald Trump's former attorney whiles away some of the time before his prison term begins with a lengthy statement of the obvious. My guests Robert Fox and Carlo Benura will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Pakistan and India leading each other to the brink again, a summit meeting between the President of the United States and the leader of North Korea somehow failing to make headlines, and a proposed law in Indonesia which would see much modern pop music outlawed, though there are also downsides. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Carlo Bonura, Senior Teaching Fellow in Southeast Asian Politics at SOAS, and Robert Fox, Defence Editor of the Evening Standard. Welcome both. And we will start in Kashmir, a never-quite-dormant geopolitical volcano which appears on the verge of one of its periodic eruptions. Pakistan claims to have shot down two Indian fighter jets and captured one pilot. India, as we go to air, is admitting to the loss of one MiG-21 and is demanding the return of the pilot. It is the latest in an escalation series of incidents which have followed the bombing earlier this month of an Indian military convoy in Kashmir, responsibility for which was claimed by a Pakistan-based militant group and for which India blamed Pakistan. Um, Robert, how big a deal is this? Well, it's always very difficult to say because things can blow up uh, out of control and the unintended consequences or the unintended collaterals will play in. And particularly when you've got groups like uh, uh, Jamiat uh, uh, Muhammad and Lashkar Taiba, both of which came into being as militant pro-Pakistan or Pakistan-based. Uh, or as Isla- the Indians would have it, Pakistan-sponsored. Uh, yeah, I- Islamist movements. We can come to that. And they they pivot on two issues. One is Afghanistan, uh, which is somehow can never be quite teased out of this uh, confrontation. And the other, of course, is Kashmir. And Kashmir has been a problem um, since uh, the partition of India in 1947, although it only sort of definitively the bit that Pakistan quarrels about uh, uh, went to India in 1950 because the Maharaja, the local ruler who was tied to India Congress Party, said, these are my politics, this is the way we're going. By the way, just to give a, a reality check, I think the population of um, Kashmir at the time of uh, partition was around three and a half going on four million. Now it's well over 12 million. Um, it's, it's, it's a very difficult terrain. There are very, diffic- very particular aspects of an ethnicity there. But boy, it feeds into this very big fic- picture of the fighting for strategic space, as they call it, between Pakistan and India. So I think this one will boil for a bit. It will go on for a bit. Um, uh, Imran Khan and uh, sorry, um, the, the 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 Prime Minister of um, of, uh, of of uh, of Pakistan and Modi of India so far have been saying sensible things, and I think the sort of rather hysterical headlines, obviously because they are two nuclear powers. Oh, are we edging towards nu- nuclear war? 
I think that it's uh, we're quite a way away from a real uh, a real escalation. But I think it's had one really damaging effect already, which is Taliban uh, Taliban elements in the talks in Afghanistan saying they're off now for the time being. Uh, Carlo, is there an element of, if, if not actual theatre, then then certainly ritual about this in that you, you have an incident which was the, the bombing of this military convoy uh, earlier this month with the loss of at least 40 Indone- uh, Indian rather uh, military personnel, to which India obviously is obliged to respond. So India responds by blowing up a few you know unspecified targets associated allegedly with militant groups and Pakistan therefore feels obliged to respond to that and you end up in a situation which has enormous emotive resonance of having at least one aircraft shot down and at least one pilot captured. Um, Have we reached a point at which one or both sides are going to decide actually we don't really want a war? Uh, I, I hope we don't. I, I think that uh, what was just said was uh, very reasonable in terms of uh, that this is a, a peer- right now what we're what we're likely to see is a period of uh, de-escalation. Uh, however, I think what you said a second ago in terms of how emotive these uh, different issues are is very important. Uh, Modi is looking at a uh, an election, uh, upcoming election in Indian politics. Uh, yeah, in, in uh, Indian politics. And um, the Pakistani military is always keen on, uh, you know, uh, ratcheting things up. Uh, and so what we I think what uh, we have in this case is um, uh, an instance in which uh, Modi had to respond to the attack and had to seem uh, that he was, uh, you know, the strong man in this case. And Pakistan simply couldn't let it be. Now, the fact that this is uh, the if I'm not mistaken, the the most substantial incursion, uh, particularly an air, these airstrikes and, and the um, fighting in the air uh, since 1971, I think is is really something to uh, to dwell on. And uh, I think I think, um, as it was said a second ago, that it's correct that some of these headlines are uh, overblown, but they're overblown in, in some ways uh, for a reason, given given the um, the intensity of the responses. Robert, you you both mentioned those overblown headlines, and and they're nowhere more overblown than in India and Pakistan themselves, because obviously this kind of thing sells newspapers and drives traffic to to websites in India and Pakistan. This is, um, you know, a, a great nationalist rallying point on both sides, but. Um, a lot of the panic certainly outside Indonesia and pa- Indonesia. I've got to stop saying that. It's because there's an Indonesia item at the end. Um, a lot of the panic outside India and Pakistan is because they are both nuclear armed powers. And Robert, is there an argument at all that the fact of that actually makes war less likely rather than more? Is is deterrence going to work? Well, that is the theory of a deterrence, and I would agree with you. I, I'm quite leery about the theology of deterrence. And I knew the great theologian of deterrent theory for NATO, not only the UK, was a friend of mine, Michael Quinlan, very well. And he had an almost priestly attitude to it. Where I think deterrent doesn't work is in a multilateral world. Where it does work is when it's a bilateral, when it's mutually assured destruction. And that's what we've got here. Because interestingly, just to sort of go into the the details of the history, that they both declared that they were nuclear in 1998. And yet they did have a nasty, but I agree with Carlo, very local uh, encounter uh, at Kalgil with the place, mm. uh, w- but it, which was a push and pull. You, there was an incursion into the Indian post uh, from the Pakistan side, and the air was used. Uh, 
Um, people like uh, General Lord, now Field Marshal Lord Guthrie, who knew Musharraf, beetled off to, to Pakistan, and Brits and French, as well as Americans, did likewise with India to say, now, now, do you really know how, you know, red telephones work in these, these situations? And uh, I, I am led to believe that, that there are British and French and other personnel really lending, lending their good office, officers here because there's one bit about the military kit that I would like to raise, and it hasn't been raised. It's very old stuff that they've been dealing with, <laughs> and it can go terribly wrong. Uh, this was a MiG-21, which, which is what is the Afghan Air Force, when it was under Russian control, had. And by the way, if they get into ground fighting, and I think that this is a deterrent, and they have done it quite seriously, it is about the most hostile terrain you can find. It would be the highest battlefield in the world. They've had a go fighting on the glaciers there once before since in independence, and they don't like it. Uh, just a final quick thought on this one, Carlo. Uh, what difference to the dynamic is made by any idea that on this occasion nobody is watching the shop in Washington? I think I'm right in saying that at the moment uh, the United States doesn't even have an ambassador in Pakistan. Mm. Well, I think this has been the Trump administration's problem all along, uh, particularly in terms of Southeast Asia, the region I know a little bit better, uh, but also across the East Asia, uh, when they are not dealing with crises that are at the uh, uh, front of their attention and they're, that they're completely uh, transfixed on. For instance, North Korea, everything else is done at the ministerial level and with very little uh, with very little leverage, it seems. So I, I don't know exactly how much... It, it seems as if China, once again, ironically, has come out uh, with the most level-headed, you know, uh, get together, have some talks. We don't want we don't want this to be, uh, escalate. This is the usually the kind of language that would come out of Washington first. Uh, and it seems like China has beat Washington a punch again. Okay, well, let's let's look now at Vietnam. Uh, as a younger man, U.S. President Donald Trump was prevented from going by the cruel agonies of bone spurs in his feet, though these mercifully cleared up shortly after he passed draftable age. He has at last made it to Hanoi, however, to undertake the second of his summits with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, whom Trump seems to regard as the son he wishes he'd had. And given the sons Trump actually had, it's hard to entirely blame him. The pair offered a brief photo call, which can't have done wonders for anyone emerging from a three-year coma at precisely that moment, then repaired for dinner at the Metropole Hotel, where one hopes the cake chef has taken on extra staff. Um, Carlo, is, is this just a stunt? Uh, we, I think we have to be realistic here. On the one hand, it is uh, kind of, and I'll, I'm, I, I'm serious here, I'm earnest about this. It is an incredible achievement that we have now had two summits with uh, the North Korean leadership, uh, given the uh, where we were just before this point. So on the one hand, we can't necessarily be cynical of the uh, this kind of diplomacy. The problem here is that there is no broad policy in place. There's no vision, uh, with the exception of the perhaps the UN, excuse me, U.S. representative to North Korea. Uh, you know, there's no real vision here as to how this uh, is supposed to play out. So we saw the first summit uh, go and pass, uh, come and pass, and uh, there was really no, there was a, a big deal, uh, no progress made on that deal. I, I read um, uh, recently that uh, it took the North Koreans eight months to actually come to the table in terms of the working level negotiations, the things that were, that were um, designed, the talks that were designed to actually, uh, you know, allow for progress to really take place. Here we are at the second talk or the second summit 
I think what we're going to see from this is potentially uh, some smaller deals uh, worked out. But I don't think that that the hawks in the Trump administration, uh, you know, their aim is to have a first step in denuclearization uh, coming from the closure of the big nuclear complex. I simply don't see that happening. I think that uh, this may not be purely a photo shoot, but it certainly is not going to get anywhere close to de- denuclearization for the Trump uh, administration. Uh, Robert, Carlo does make the perfectly reasonable point that it is... Uh, you know, in and of itself, an extraordinary, let's call it a thing, if not necessarily an achievement. It is an extraordinary thing that a president of the United States is meeting with the leader of North Korea. It, 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 it seemed, you know, five, you know, three years ago, the diplomatic equivalent of, of walking on the moon. Um, would we be regarding this differently if it wasn't Trump doing this? Uh, you know, in being cynical about this, are we, by which, let's face it, I mean I, um, submitting to a certain amount of Trump derangement syndrome? Should we be extending credit where it's well, due? It's something that he can do. It's something that he can grasp. He likes the big occasion with the big man and playing on the big stage. And that is not to be sneezed at, because that's the way he plays to his core constituency. What was really rather touching about this was Trump himself, before he took office, said, don't expect too much from this. He was saying it's going to be small steps, and uh, which was remarkably modest for such an immodest man. Um, Carl is absolutely right. They want to get into the nuclear plant. They, they want to get some kind of inspection or monitoring regime. And I think that that's where we will hear something. By the way, they won't achieve it. And remember Dan Coates... Uh, reported to the Senate Intelligence Committee that it's far more likely that, um, that as far as they can make out, that North Korea is building missiles, is going on with its delivery vehicles programmed, and not to the extent that the Trumperies are saying uh, the Iran isn't doing that. Iran is playing a completely different game. Um, but never mind, you know, Trump land doesn't take noti- any notice of that kind of stuff. What I suspect they will say, it will be gestural. And I think that what Trump will try and say something nice about uh, coming to, I don't think there will be a treaty, but ending the hostilities of the Korean War, which is still under armistice, you know, mm. having a peace treaty, uh, which they want. He will say something vague about peace and prosperity, and that's the point of going to Vietnam. Still a one-party state, but playing the capitalist road absolutely brilliantly, more brilliantly in a way to scale than even China is. And so there'll be a lot of good feeling with that, and there'll be a lot of head-scratching. I mean, one of the real old pros of diplomacy with North Korea, Chris Hills, was saying just the other day, what the hell did come out of uh, Singapore? But at least they weren't talking about fighting each other. And I think that, that that's the point. Remember what happened in Singapore. He suddenly, without consulting anybody, Trump said, we're cancelling military exercises. Mm. Don't, don't uh, watch out for the weird squib and surprise, but there won't be a lifting of sanctions that the United States will go through and there will be no really serious inspection. Uh, Carlo, I am going to persist with the, the cynical analysis of Trump's motivations because, because let, let's face it, you rarely lose money. Um, is this just him grubbing for a Nobel Peace Prize? Obama got one, uh, admittedly, uh, for not doing terrifically much, and Trump therefore wants one as well. 
Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of coverage and a lot of talk of, about this. It's certainly possible. Uh, I think the the real problem is, uh, and it's and it's okay to be cynical, I guess. But I think the but to get off it to to move away from it again. Uh, the real problem here is that uh, we've had two summits, one right after the other, and uh, uh, Trump has uh, given. Uh, Kim Jong-un a second platform uh, and has legitimated his regime once again with very little in exchange. So th- th- I think the point here to make is that if he is just doing this for all this all, all of these ulterior motives, then this is really uh, a gamble that could end up very poorly, uh, for, not only for him, but for the, the rest of the world. If uh, Kim Jong-un believes that he can effectively dictate or motivate uh, U.S. foreign policy toward North Korea simply with the um, with the promise that Trump at some point will get a Nobel Peace Prize, this means that he's gotten inside Trump's head in some ways. And so I think that uh, we can be cynical about why Trump is doing it. But the real issue here is the, I think, is the effects on the credibility of U.S. foreign policy. And I, I do agree with uh, some people who have argued that uh, that actually the big problem here is that you're giving you you are normalizing uh, Kim's expectations to have this type of venue to have this type of access to the presidency when he's actually done nothing at all in return. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Robert Fox and Carlo Bonura. Coming up next, the U.S. comes to terms with the extraordinary suggestion that Donald Trump's personal probity might be open to question. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. And you're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Miller. Still with me are Robert Fox and Carlo Benura. It's possible that President Trump's meeting with Kim may not be receiving the undivided attention of the American public that Trump would have anticipated. Spiking his ratings has been today's testimony ongoing, indeed, before Congress of Michael Cohen, Trump's former longtime bagman. Indeed, Trump's own words, executive vice president. Cohen, due to begin a three-year prison stretch after being convicted of various crimes he claims to have committed on Trump's behalf, has told Congress that Trump is, in word and deed, a liar, a con man, a crook and a racist. We await Cohen's revelations about the religious inclinations of the Pope. Um, Robert, uh, tremendous fun though all this has been. Have, have we actually learned anything? No. <laughs> um, would, you, would you care it, to elaborate on what yeah, we haven't no, learned? I, I'm always giving you <laughs> monosyllabic answers. Um, the thing is that 
the outline of what Cohen, as far as I can make out, has been sketching the business dealings and did he know, didn't he know, the MO of Trump. Yes, we know about it. I mean, any person that can read now the excellent nightly services that you get from New Yorker, but particularly uh, Washington Post, as well as the New York Times, it's, it, there's almost, uh, it, you know, it, it, we've had such a build up to this. There's almost a ho-hum element about it. You know, th- this has been drifting around uh, uh, for, for, for such a long time. And uh, one really asks, who's next on the stand? Oh, I, I, of, to, I have some ideas. To, 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 to sort of blab away. <laughs> but where does this leave anything? Where does this leave uh, Congress's approach to the uh, to the President of the United States, the chief exec? Uh, where does it leave uh, the Robert Mueller inquiry? And not much more further forward, I think, because from what I understand, and Colour will probably, will, will, I hope, correct me on this or... or, or, or put some flesh on my blatherings. Um, as far as I can make out, it's going to be very, very difficult to uh, bring a criminal charge against the president under these circumstances. And in the current circumstances, we're, uh, we're not going to get an impeachment as far as I can make out. But can I tell you just one thing? Mr. Joe Journalist, just looking on, R. Fox... Show you what a dreadful campaign Hillary ran. <laughs> I mean, that she couldn't handle this. She couldn't get on top of it. You know, they were bad. Bad, bad, bad. And I don't think they're going to recover enough in time for 2020. Um, Carla, just for fun, uh, let, let's let's try and take a, um, a, a view somewhat sympathetic to Trump of this. Uh, Irreducible facts of this are that Michael Cohen is a convicted perjurer, uh, that he would have reason, entirely self-interested reason at this point to... I mean, he's looking at three years, which isn't going to be a lot of fun. If he, if, if he can find a way to shorten that, I'm sure he will, because certainly nothing in Michael Cohen's career to date suggests that he's not prepared to say literally anything if he <laughs> thinks it will be to his advantage. So that being the case, uh, how seriously can you take what he says? Uh, not so seriously at all. And I, I think like, I agree 100 percent with uh, what Robert just said. Uh, you know, he is I don't think you have to be a, a Trump supporter to recognize that this person is completely on. Uh, you know, he's completely has no credibility whatsoever, uh, not simply because of um, that, not simply because of his convictions, but also because of the job he played um, originally. You know, his job was to obfuscate. It was to deflect. This was precisely what he was uh, tasked with. And uh, I think the, the for me, the worst part of this is that this is Congress and American politics at its worst. If uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment was this kind of low point, we've hit another one. Why are we spending so much time and obsessing so heavily on uh, this kind of cul-de-sac of just, uh, you know, confusion and a lack of clarity? I, I don't think anything will, uh, not to mention all the personalities involved, you know, Michael Cohen, uh, listening to Michael Cohen both self-aggrandize and also self-deprecate at the same time. Uh, I think that um, th- this will, it, it will shed no light on on uh, the dynamics at, at work in any of these investigations. And I just want to add, I, I watched CNN this morning break to the revelation of the check the $35,000 check that uh, Cohen, uh, that Trump was supposed to send to Cohen. And even one of their analysts uh, very clearly right away said, and so what? What does it prove? There's no, you know, there's no way to link this check to any dealings that Trump had, had made. And this is the problem. And I think that 
the, for the Republicans and for Trump supporters, all they have to do is they simply say one word or two words, and that is Michael Cohen. And that's been the approach in the hearings today, simply constantly uh, indict his credibility. Uh, Robert, just as a final thought on this, I was thinking of something you, you, you were saying earlier that that it, it just, and this is an illustration of that, isn't it? That we just have now become so inured to Trump and the circus surrounding him. If, 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 the, if the lawyer of any other president in history had sat before Congress and given testimony like this, it would be regarded as a a shattering jaw-on-the-floor scandal with barely any precedent in the history of the United States. Uh, And we're sitting here asking each other, is any of this really that big a deal? Have we learned anything we didn't already know? Well, the key to this, uh, I I got um, last week in a brilliant lecture uh, by um, Adam Toos, who teaches at Columbia, but he's a Brit academic, and he wrote about the, 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 the crash and where we are, uh, called Crashed. And he, the theme of his thing is that we're, you know, the gravity-free economy, huge debts that you get in the US and to an extent in the UK. And he made a very, very profound point. Trump and the ultra-Brexiteers represent the seriously left behind And they don't give a damn about this stuff that goes on in Washington or Westminster or Whitehall. And this is going to take a long time to play out. uh, I was talking to Roger Cohen, friend, colleague, you know, the the commentator of the New York Times just yesterday. And he's been going through the South again. He went through the South as, uh, as Trump was going to the primaries. They knew exactly what they got and they knew exactly who they were voting for in Trump. And this doesn't change anything. Okay. on that happy note, finally, uh, inveighing against the depravity of modern music has been a reliable refuge of scoundrel politicians since shortly after the first guitar was plugged in. In Indonesia, a thoroughly idiotic draft bill will, if passed, ban much foreign music, including that containing lyrics classified as provocative, whatever that means. It will also ban the performance of non-traditional Indonesian music, which will be great news for gamelan makers, if nobody else. And in especially conservative West Java, meanwhile, a bunch of songs which have been pornographic have been banned from radio during hours of daylight, including one by Ed Sheeran, so swings and roundabouts. Um, Carlo, what is, what is going on here? I mean, apart from anything else, what, how is this going to play with Indonesia's many, many tens, if not hundreds of millions of avid fans of modern popular song, including, I think I'm right in saying, President Wododo, very keen on Metallica? Yeah, absolutely. He's, uh, Islamic uh, Metallica, too. Yeah, Islamic <laughs> Metallica, exactly, yeah. Uh, I, what's fascinating here is that there are some serious points to make about how this draft bill uh, came about. This is a very good example of how the uh, House of Representatives in Indonesia is a very is very bad at actually crafting laws. So it's not just uh, laws on uh, on music. There was the controversial law against pornography, but even laws which have to do with very serious things, such as the anti-terrorism bill or the. Um, the uh, bills related to oil and gas in Indonesia. The House of Representatives is is very bad at managing uh, competing political interests and usually uh, uh, crafts law in ways that uh, brings together a huge variety of different uh, ideas and tries to, to assemble them into a single law. Here, what's interesting is that you have some of the supporters of the bill talking about how it's designed to protect uh, in the Indonesian music industry, but then there are these morality clauses like uh, you know, people will face uh, 
fines and jail time if they uh, borrow foreign elements that have negative influences uh, or if they demean uh, human uh, demean other humans. Uh, and this obviously plays into the hands of the Islamists. So uh, it's there are a lot of different things going on here. The result is uh, a law which will certainly uh, we'll we'll do two things. One is to you know really threaten the domestic music industry in Indonesia, but also uh, provide some avenues for bureaucratic enforcement of uh, morality, which is always a bad thing, particularly since that's not centralized in Indonesia. Uh, Robert, tempting though I can see that it might be to to threaten Ed Sheeran fans with with fines, imprisonment, possibly even corporal punishment of some sort. How and why does this always work? How do moral panics about pop music in the you know, year 2019 still gain any traction whatsoever? Well, it is, you know, something and other. You can do it. I mean, sorry to go back to to uh, Brexit, where we had uh, the, 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 the nowheres and everywheres and so on. It's self and other. And you're trying to define yourself. I think it seems, but Carlo obviously knows much more about this than I do, but reading it through, it seemed to me there were a hell of a lot of electoral politics in this. And it's always such a mistake to ban things being done by young people well, within, within reason. I mean, Mubarak, <laughs> Mubarak, for instance, did it try to close, shut down Google, for goodness sake. And it, it seems to me it's going to be the thing of the same order. I mean, people, they might even ban Monocle. You never know online in, 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 in Indonesia. They, they certainly Cra- will if they've listened to this. Cr- crazy idea. Always, it's good to go on a witch hunt, you know, that they're the bad guys, you know. The Italians have a lovely expression, il grande vecchio, the grand old man who is the, behind everything. And il grande vecchio might be the Pope, the anti-Pope, it's quite often Brussels, it might even be Mrs May now, for all, for all I know. But it's a way of defining, and it, it's such a mistake, you just do not understand youth like this, and they will find a way around it. And, but it, it, they will love it, because if you drive this underground, it makes it more exciting, sexier <laughs> still. I mean, if I was in the music industry in, in, in Indonesia, I'd be delighted. Well, on that possibly counterintuitive note, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Robert Fox and Carlo Benura, thank you both for joining us. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900, it's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bache, and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. I'm your host for that as well. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.